You're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's Theology Class. Join us as we put out into the deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about time and how we mark time as Christians. Let's begin. Hello there. Welcome to episode 62 of Bonus Points. If you're a regular listener of the show, you may have noticed that I've been on a bit of a hiatus for the last several weeks. I'm releasing this episode in June, but episode 61 came out back in April. In a minute, I'll have more to say about the gap in new content, and it's going to fit well with our main concept for this episode, because today's episode is all about time. As humans, but especially as Christians, we tend to mark time with a certain rhythm. As a teacher, my year has a certain rhythm to it because I have summer break, where I am now. But then I also have the school year. And even within the school year, different seasons have different feels to them. If you're still in school, or even if you're not and you remember, you know, August feels very different than November, which is different than May. Today, I'd like to look at how this influences our Christian life, both in our private devotions but especially in our liturgical life together. Before we get into all that, remember to subscribe to Bonus Points or follow the show wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. Help this podcast grow by sharing it with a friend and check out our website, bonuspointspodcast.com, for lots of information related to each episode. All right, before we dive too deeply into today's topic, I want to mention another way that time has influenced us Specifically, it's been quite a bit of time since the last episode. Regular listeners know that I typically post a new episode every week, usually on Monday or Tuesday. Around February or March of this year, that slowed to every other week, and then since April, nothing. Trust me, this isn't due to any lack of interest on my part. I love just about every part of what goes into making this show, from researching new topics to recording episodes and most especially to hearing from people who have learned something new or have a deeper faith because of the show, praise God. But as I've always said, this show is an extension of my classroom. That means, of course, that my classroom responsibilities have to take priority, no matter how much I would rather be writing new episodes or interviewing new guests. And really, that's what time management is all about, right? We look at the things we need to do or want to do, and we decide how to properly prioritize them. St. Thomas Aquinas defines peace as the tranquility of order. So if our days are out of order, we'll never have peace. That means my responsibilities to my family, that has to come first. Then I also have responsibilities for the school, and the reality is that spring is a very busy time of year, so there wasn't a whole lot of time left after that. So even though you would expect a school-based podcast to take its break over the summer, it actually works better to take a break toward the end of the spring semester when things are at their absolute busiest. Heck, now that it's summer, I have lots more time for making new content. So this year's hiatus wasn't quite planned, but I think that it certainly makes enough sense to do it a bit more intentionally next year. For now, though, we're back with a new season of interesting topics and people. Speaking of topics, that's a good time to circle back to our topic for today, which is time. The title of today's episode was kind of a play on words. You get it, because it's about time that I released a new episode, but the episode is also about time. 
Okay, here's what I'd like to do. We're going to start with the Old Testament to see how the law of Moses provides Israel with a few different ways of marking time. When the new covenant comes along, these practices aren't abandoned, but fulfilled. We'll see how this biblical view of time carries right over into some of our practices today. And to do that both for the Old Covenant and the New, we'll start small and look at how we mark each day at specific times. Then we'll zoom out until we get to things that only happen every so many years. Finally, we'll wrap up the episode by talking about why this matters and why it isn't just complexity for its own sake, but it's really important to who we are as people and how we function. Okay, Let's start by looking at the Old Covenant given to Israel through Moses. If we read through the Pentateuch or the Torah, we'll find that some of the commandments relate to celebrating things at specific times. In fact, there is a prayer that the Israelites are commanded to pray several times each day. This is the Shema, which gets its name from the beginning of the prayer in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, or Hear, O Israel. The next part of the prayer encapsulates the entire Jewish faith by confessing God's oneness. It can be translated as, the Lord our God is Lord alone, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is from Deuteronomy 6, which commands the Israelites to remember these words both when they lie down and when they rise. The ancient rabbis interpreted this to mean that the Shema ought to be recited each day in the morning and in the evening. It also became customary to recite it one final time as you were going to bed. So, by the time of Jesus, Jews were reciting the Shema at least three times a day, in the morning, in the evening, and at night. At the risk of getting ahead of myself, we see this custom become part of the Christian life pretty much right away. The Didache, which is a first century liturgical manual, says that Christians ought to pray the Our Father three times a day, in the morning, in the evening, and at night. Now, when it comes to marking times in the Old Covenant, the most important, without question, is the weekly commemoration of the seventh day, or the Sabbath. We all know this part of the story, right? God creates the universe in six days and then rests on the seventh. Right from the start, this becomes part of the human experience as well. God institutes the Sabbath as a day each week when we rest from our work, not only to imitate him, but to be with him and to renew our covenant with him. This commandment is so important that, unlike others, it was obligatory not only for the Israelites, but even for their animals and any foreigners who were staying with them. The idea being that this weekly commemoration was not just for Israel, but for all creation. When we look at the Gospels, we see the Sabbath as a frequent point of contention between Jesus and the religious authorities. They took the Sabbath rest so seriously that they were scandalized when Jesus dared to heal on the Sabbath. As we talked about back in episode 39 on rest, we don't celebrate the Sabbath the exact same way in the New Covenant as we did in the Old, but we still celebrate the Lord's Day each Sunday as a day to rest and worship. Now, if we zoom out a little further, the Torah commands certain annual feasts, the holy days of the Jewish calendar. For example, in Exodus 15, God gives the Israelites instructions for conducting the Passover sacrifice. But this isn't just a one-and-done thing. Right there in the instructions, God commands them to keep the Passover as an annual memorial of God's saving work. And as we talked about back in episode 55 on memory, the biblical concept of a memorial 
isn't just a recollection of a past event, but it makes it present again, or it's a representation. These annual remembrances were ways of connecting members of the covenant across every generation to God's action in that generation. This is the same way we talk about the Mass as a memorial of Christ's death and resurrection. It's not just a cognitive exercise or a way of mentally recalling the past, but it actually brings us into contact with those events. So throughout the law, God commands Israel to commemorate his action, whether that's the Passover or God dwelling with the Israelites in the desert, or even God's forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. These holy days were usually tied in with something in nature as well, such as the beginning or end of a harvest season, and because this is another part of it, right? Nature also goes through these cycles every year. Then as time goes on, there were times when the Jews found themselves up against an enemy bent on their annihilation, and they survived against all odds. These start to make their way onto the calendar as well. So in addition to the commemorations commanded by the Torah, there's also Purim to celebrate the victory of Queen Esther. There's Hanukkah to remember the revolt of the Maccabees and the rededication of the temple. In more recent times, there's Yom HaShoah to commemorate those killed in the Holocaust or the Shoah. These feast days, like Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, happen every year. But the Torah also provides for certain celebrations that happen every number of years. The first is the sabbatical year, which was every seventh year. You could probably tell that the name comes from the Sabbath, the idea being that if every seventh day is the Sabbath day, every seventh year is the Sabbath year or the sabbatical. If you got to rest every seventh day, during the sabbatical, the land itself gets to rest. So every seventh year, you don't do any farming, no planting, no harvesting, nothing. Of course, this has agricultural benefits as well. Even today, kids learn about how the ground gets depleted of nutrients, and so you would leave the fields empty, or later on, rotate crops. If you've ever heard of somebody, especially like a professor, going on sabbatical, that's a similar idea. They're taking a year off. For the record, I wouldn't be mad about getting a year off every seven. Now, even further out, you have the Jubilee year, described in Leviticus 25. This one happened after every seventh sabbatical year, so seven sets of seven years, or 49 years. This was a big deal for the Israelites, especially pre-exile. The Jubilee year was when God's mercy was most manifest. And that mercy was also shown by the Israelites. Practically, that meant that slaves and prisoners were set free, debts were forgiven, and land was returned to its ancestral owners. Now, this one warrants a bit more explanation because we hear something like slaves set free and we think, wait, why did they have slaves at all? Or we hear land returned and think, hold on, but like if somebody bought that land, why don't they get to keep it? So let, let's back up. Let's talk about slaves. Because the Old Testament does refer to Israelites owning slaves, and even the New Testament talks about treating slaves fairly, many of us listening are Americans or otherwise have a very modern Western worldview. So for many of us, and I know I'm, I'm including myself in here as well, when I hear the word slavery, I think of chattel slavery or the kind of slavery that was practiced here in the New World hundreds of years ago. In chattel slavery, your slave was considered to be your property, to do with as you please. 
Generally, your slave was a slave for life, as were any of their children. Now, this is not the kind of slavery practiced in biblical times. The kind of slaves that Leviticus or St. Paul is referring to would be more similar to what we would call indentured servants. Somebody becoming a slave was usually the result of a debt that they couldn't pay back, and it was meant to be temporary. It was a way of working off a debt that you couldn't otherwise pay, kind of like the old trope about washing dishes at a restaurant because you can't afford dinner. What Leviticus is saying here is that any of these indentured servants you have were to be set free during the Jubilee, whether they had done their time or not. As for the land thing, this one is also confusing because of how we think about property rights. For us, when you own land, you own it. When you sell it, somebody else owns it now. But in the Torah, remember that the land it's referring to is the promised land. It was given not only to the Israelites, but each tribe and family was given a specific part of the promised land. Now, if you found yourself in a bind, you might sell some land to make money. But even though you had sold that land, it was still your family's land by right. So when you sold land, it was more similar to like a long-term renter. And in the Jubilee year, you got that land back. Again, it was another expression of how debts were canceled. So in the Old Covenant, you had this rhythm to every day and every year, and then every set of seven years and every seven sabbaticals as well. And a lot of these ideas were carried over into the New Covenant. So let's talk about that and how we mark time as Catholic Christians. This time we'll start big and then zoom in. So we just talked about the Jewish Jubilee year, and guess what? We have those as well. They don't always follow a 49-year cycle, though at some points in history they have, and they've actually been celebrated at different intervals throughout time. Currently, an ordinary jubilee is celebrated every 25 years, and then you have extraordinary jubilees that are kind of sprinkled throughout whenever a pope declares one. The most recent ordinary jubilee was the Millennium Jubilee of 2000 which means that there's another one coming up in 2025. And in fact, planning for that jubilee is already underway. And in the show notes, I'll have a link to more information about the jubilee. We've also had some extraordinary jubilees for all sorts of reasons. Most recently, the extraordinary jubilee year of mercy that Pope Francis called in 2016. Unfortunately, these jubilees don't include the forgiveness of all debts, but they are times when God's mercy is more clearly manifest. Jubilees are always marked by different traditions and rituals, but one that I want to highlight is the opening of the Holy Door. In St. Peter's Basilica, there is a door that's only open during Jubilee years, and it's usually walled up behind bricks any other time. When a Pope formally begins a Jubilee year, he opens the Holy Door and walks through it. Then throughout the year, Pilgrims to Rome enter the church through this door as a sign of their pilgrimage. You can think of it as like a symbolic, like we talk about when God closes a door, he opens a window. We can think of this as like a symbolic door being opened, like this particular door of mercy is open this year. And there are usually lots of different graces and indulgences attached with um, making a pilgrimage through the holy door. And here's a fun fact for you. Back in 2016 for the Year of Mercy, 
Pope Francis asked dioceses around the world to each designate their own holy door that had the same blessings as the one in Rome. So I was at a Steubenville conference during that year, and the Diocese of Steubenville had designated a door on campus at Franciscan University as the holy door. And so I got to walk through it right after going to confession. It was an incredible blessing. Now, you may not have been very familiar with the idea of jubilees, in part because they happen so infrequently, but we also have ways of marking the different parts of the year, and you're probably a bit more familiar with those. That is, the different seasons of the liturgical year. Just like nature has four seasons, the liturgical year is divided into different seasons to remember different events from salvation history. The year begins with Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, when we prepare not only to remember Christ's coming at the Nativity, but we prepare for his second coming as well. You can go back and listen to a great conversation I had with Mike Pacer about Advent in episode 51. Christmas Day begins the Christmas season, which is an extended reflection on the Nativity that continues for a few weeks after. Of course, the most important feast of the year is the Paschal Triduum, these three days when we commemorate Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. Back in episodes 16 and 17, we talked about some of the unique rituals that accompany these most holy days. The 40 days leading up to the Triduum are the season of Lent, this time when we go into the desert with Christ to prepare for Easter. Then, beginning on Easter Day, we have these 50 days of the Easter season ending on Pentecost. The rest of the year is made up of ordinary time, which is a criminally underrated season. We hear ordinary and we think it means normal or usual or uninteresting, but the word ordinary here just means ordered, because the Sundays are numbered. Really, this is a time when we focus on growing in our faith, which is why we wear green during ordinary time. Now, alongside these liturgical seasons, which usually span over several weeks, We also have traditional devotions for each month of the year. This is perhaps a little less well-known than liturgical seasons, but it's another great way to bring faith into the home. Unlike the liturgical seasons, these devotions are less official or set in stone, but they are important traditions, and they're usually complementary with the liturgical calendar because in many cases they grew out of the liturgical calendar. For example, I'm recording this in June, which is the month of the Sacred Heart. And that's fitting because the Feast of the Sacred Heart happens in June. But popular piety has said, you know what? This is important enough that we should spend all of June thinking on it. So here are the devotions for each month of the year. If you don't already observe these, I would encourage you to find some way to incorporate something. Spend some time each month learning more about these different parts of the faith or doing something special. Alright, January is dedicated to the Holy Name of Jesus, because we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Name in early January to commemorate Jesus receiving his name, which the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. February is devoted to the Holy Family. It's sort of a continuation of Christmas, especially since February includes this little slice of ordinary time before Lent starts. We've celebrated Jesus' birth and naming. Now we take some time to stay with the Holy Family in Nazareth as Jesus grows up. 
March is the month of St. Joseph because his feast day is on March 19th. As I've discussed in previous episodes, like episodes 11 and 47, I love St. Joseph, and my devotion to him has only deepened over the years, so I love that he has an entire month. April has two similar devotions attached to it, and those are the Holy Eucharist and the Holy Spirit. Both of these are based on the fact that, depending when Easter falls, we're usually in the Easter season for most or all of April. This means that the entire month, we're thinking about the the risen Christ remaining with his disciples. And the Eucharist is Christ remaining with us, even today. We're also preparing for the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is why there's a focus on him in April as well. May might be the most well-known of the monthly devotions, because May is dedicated to Mary, and is usually marked by May crownings, where we make crowns, usually out of flowers, and put them on statues of Our Lady. I don't know if this is a universal tradition, but in my parish growing up, it was always the second graders who did the May crowning. They would wear their fancy suits and dresses that they had worn for their first communions, and then parents would come, and it was a whole thing. June, like we mentioned, is dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. My hope, no promises, is that I'm going to release an episode on devotion to the Sacred Heart tomorrow. Um, Now, instead of releasing, I was going to release it next Monday, which is still technically part of the month of June, but um, this is coming out on Monday, May 12th. Um, This coming Friday is, not May 12th, geez, June 12th, this coming Friday is the Feast of the Sacred Heart, so instead of delaying the the episode on the Sacred Heart to next Monday, I'm going to release it tomorrow so that... um, it's out before the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart happens on Friday. And this is another devotion that I'm very attracted to. It's become an important part of my spiritual life. And so I want to be able to share that with you in a little bit more depth in time to celebrate the Feast of the Sacred Heart on Friday. July follows closely on June and is focused on the precious blood of Jesus, with the Feast of the Precious Blood happening on July 1st. This day and this month, commemorate the blood that Jesus shed out of love for us and the saving power of his blood. August is another Marian month with the Solemnity of the Assumption on August 15th. So August is the month of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. This is another companion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and it focuses on the love that Mary has for all of her children. That's us. September is dedicated to Mary under the title of Our Lady of Sorrows, with the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows happening sometime in September. Sometimes people see this title for Mary and think that, oh, this is Catholics being like mopey or depressing, but I actually really love this title for Mary. It reminds us that she's been there and that she can relate to us when we are suffering. It's also a powerful reminder that bad things happen to good people and not all suffering is a direct result of sin. After all, If Mary and Jesus were both sinless and both experienced tremendous suffering, I shouldn't be too surprised when I encounter difficulties. October is another well-known one because it is the month of the Rosary. The Feast of Our Lady of Victory, or Our Lady of the Rosary, happens on the anniversary of the Battle of Lepanto in October. If you don't already pray the Rosary regularly, October might be a good time to include that in your routine more often. Back in episode 49, I talked about why I love the rosary and why I pray it every day. 
November is dedicated to the holy souls in purgatory. If you listen to episode 46 about Halloween, you know that November 2nd is the Feast of All Souls. Throughout the entire month, we remember to pray for our beloved dead who have gone before us in faith. Finally, we have December, which is dedicated to the Immaculate Conception. This one also fits with the liturgical calendar because most of December is part of the Advent season leading up to Christmas. We celebrate the Immaculate Conception on December 8th and throughout the month to help us reflect on the events that led up to the Incarnation. Okay, so we have both the liturgical calendar and the monthly devotions that break up the year. But then sprinkled all throughout, we have different saints' feast days. Often they fall on the anniversary of that saint's death, their heavenly birthday, but that's not always the case. I love this because all throughout the year, the church presents us with examples of holy men and women who have gone before us. As we discussed back in episode 12, the saints are there both as intercessors and as inspiration for us. Even if not every saint has a feast day that is celebrated by the universal church, we're still given all these opportunities to look to these role models and consider how they show us what it means to be Christian in every era and state of life. All right, let's zoom in even further to talk about the structure of the week. Of course, the most important day of the week for us is Sunday, or the Lord's Day. What the Sabbath was in the Old Covenant, the Lord's Day is for the New. Where the former commemorated God completing his creation by resting on the seventh day, the latter recalls God completing his recreation through the resurrection on the eighth day, or the first day of the week. But like the Sabbath, we mark this day through two primary practices, communal worship and rest. And even today, the church asks us to attend Mass on Sunday and to rest from servile labor, which, again, we talked about back in episode 39. In the show notes, I'll have a link to the part of the Catechism that deals with the Third Commandment, to keep holy the Sabbath, because it has so many beautiful things to say about the Lord's Day and its role in our lives. So, obviously, Sunday is kind of a big deal, but did you know that there is also a traditional devotion for every day of the week? Even if not all of them have the same level of solemnity as the Lord's Day, there are still different aspects of the faith that we can reflect on throughout the week, sort of like the monthly devotions that we talked about a moment ago. There's even some overlap between the monthly and weekly devotions. Sunday is dedicated to the Trinity and to the Resurrection. Monday is for the Holy Souls in Purgatory and praying for them. Tuesday is dedicated to the Holy Angels, especially our Guardian Angels. Wednesday is for St. Joseph. Thursday is the Day of the Last Supper, is dedicated to the Eucharist and to the priesthood. And Friday commemorates the Passion. And so this is also a day when we abstain from eating meat. Many people fast on Fridays as well. Saturday is for Our Lady. In fact, just about every Saturday can be celebrated liturgically as a memorial of Our Lady, if the priest chooses. Now, if we zoom in even further we can see how there are ways we can sanctify each day and the parts of each day. The most important, of course, is the Liturgy of the Hours. We talked about the Liturgy of the Hours back in episode 33, but just in case it's been a while, this is the official public prayer of the Church. It consists of several hours or times throughout the day when we stop to pray the Psalms from morning prayer to daytime prayer, evening prayer, and night prayer. And then we have the Office of Readings, which happens somewhere in there. 
In fact, many monasteries pray that particular hour in the middle of the night, so they really get that around-the-clock prayer. While priests and religious are obligated to pray the Liturgy of the Hours, it's something that is open to all of us, so I'd encourage you to try it out if you haven't. Even if you just make, say, night prayer part of your routine, it's a great way to unite your prayer with that of the whole church. Beyond that, there are a few other traditional devotions that are said at different times. The morning offering is a prayer that is said, you know, in the morning. It offers the entire day to God as a way of us living out our baptismal priesthood. There are different versions, but my favorite one goes like this, and if you're one of my students, you'll know that this is the prayer that we use to start the school day each morning. O my Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you all of my works, prayers, joys, and sufferings of this day, for all the intentions in your sacred heart, in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of my friends and family, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. We also have the Angelus, which is a short prayer that commemorates the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary at the Annunciation. It is traditionally prayed at 6 a.m., or just in the morning, at noon, and at 6 p.m., or in the evening. In fact, some churches ring their bells every hour, or even every 15 minutes, but others only ring them at noon. That's why it's to mark time for the Angelus. We also have the tradition of praying right before we go to sleep. As a kid, you may have learned the rhyming prayer, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, but even if you don't use that exact prayer, it's still good for us to commit ourselves to the Lord at the end of the day. Wow, okay, at this point your head might be spinning a little bit, because there are so many things that we do throughout each day, week, each year. How can we keep this all straight? Well, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, I would like to give you some encouragement and say you don't have to do all of this, especially not all at once. You know, the monthly devotions and the liturgical seasons don't need to take a lot of time. They may just give us something to think about during those weeks, something to take into our usual times of prayer. Now, you may also be wondering why we do this. It may feel a little excessive or even perhaps unnecessary. The two challenges, or maybe questions, that I hear most often, doesn't this get repetitive? And doesn't this make it less genuine? Like, instead of celebrating the resurrection every spring, wouldn't it be more meaningful if we celebrated the resurrection spontaneously? Or shouldn't we celebrate it every day? Let's start with that first question. Does having these cycles make everything too repetitive? Especially if scripture warns us against vain repetition in our faith. The first thing I'd like to say is that not all repetition is vain or empty repetition. Many of the Psalms include the same line repeated over and over. I'm thinking especially of the one that tells the story of Israel with his love endures forever between each line. I don't think anybody would accuse the Psalms of vain repetition, so not all repetition is vain. Even if we celebrate these same feast days each year, that doesn't mean that we have the same experience or the same appreciation each time. These liturgical cycles are circular, but they're not flat circles. They're more like spirals, you know? We go around and around, but hopefully our appreciation deepens each time we go around. I also like the analogy of a river. Let's say you're crossing a river and you stand in the middle. Then, later on, maybe years later, 
you cross the same river and stand in the same spot. Is it the same? Well, in some ways, it's the same river, but at the same time, we know it's different, right? It's different water. Maybe even we are different. It's the same when it comes to these cycles. Even if some parts remain the same, it's also new every time. When it comes to genuineness, genuinity, this is um, very similar to the argument I hear sometimes from people around Valentine's Day. Um, It's always that holiday. I don't know why that holiday specifically, but I always hear people say, I don't celebrate Valentine's Day because I think you should show your significant other that you love them every day. Or it's similar to an argument that people sometimes make against reciting like pre-written prayers. The idea that if something is given to us or comes from outside of us, then it can't be genuine. I think that there is a flaw in thinking here. It is possible for somebody to miss the point and to celebrate Valentine's Day or Christmas or anything without meaning it. It can become dry, just like we're checking off a box, but I don't think that has to happen necessarily. I mean, we use words like I love you every day, and even if it is the same words, it's possible for us to mean it or not to mean it. The fact that it's repeated does not mean that it is not genuine. Having special days to celebrate specific things in no way invalidates celebrating those things on other days as well. We don't pretend that the resurrection didn't happen just because it's Lent, and we don't refuse to show our appreciation for somebody just because, say, it's not their birthday. But we do have those special days to give us opportunities to step back and reflect more deeply on that event or that person. They're invitations to build on what we're already doing for the rest of the year. And when it comes to the faith, we can't possibly focus on everything all the time. Even take just one mystery like the Nativity. We will never exhaust all of the depth and meaning there, even if we spent all day every day thinking about it. And so the church in her wisdom gives us specific seasons and days as opportunities to spend some time with a particular mystery or event or person, because otherwise we would almost certainly neglect something important. The last thing I want to say here goes back to an idea that comes up pretty regularly here on Bonus Points, and that is our sacramental worldview. This idea that because we are body and soul, our worship is going to involve both our bodies and our souls. We're not just disembodied spirits, but we're both, right? To be human is to be a body and a soul together. Lose one, and you're either a corpse or a ghost, and we know that neither one is a a complete human experience. So when it comes to our encounter with God, it's going to have both bodily and spiritual dimensions. And in fact, you can't separate them because the body expresses and makes visible the spirit. If we're physical bodies, then that means our spiritual lives have, what, time and space. We consecrate space or set it apart or make it holy when we build churches or make a prayer corner in our homes. We sanctify that space by putting up religious art and trying to make beautiful churches. Well, the same idea applies to time. Just like a prayer corner says, God gave me this house and I'm going to give some of it back to him, I'm going to set aside part of it for him, we can also take the time that God has given us and say this time is given back to God. It is set apart or sanctified. And so no matter when you're listening to this, whether it's summer, like it is now as I'm recording, or some other time of the year, 
or even whatever season of life you are in as you're listening, I would encourage you to make that effort to sanctify your time. Enter into that rhythm of the church and allow it to to suffuse your days, your weeks, and your years. That's going to do it for today's episode. But before I leave you, I want to point out some of the resources that you'll find if you go to the episode guide on bonuspointspodcast.com. This time around, I'll have links to those three passages from the Old Testament that we referenced from Deuteronomy, Genesis, and Leviticus. I'll also have a link to the official website for the 2025 Jubilee year, a page with more information about the devotions for each day of the week, and two sections of the Catechism. The first is why we celebrate Sunday as the Lord's Day, and the second will be about the liturgical seasons and times. Finally, I'll I'll have a list of previous episodes that were referenced in today's episode if you're looking for more bonus points and you don't want to wait. Again, all of those resources can be found in the episode guide on bonuspointspodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining me as we continue every episode to put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.